here we are, Data Protection Breakfast Club, the Wall Street episode starring two lawyers from Fenwick and West, uh, Evan Beanstock and Jennifer Stanley, two super intelligent attorneys in different practice groups at Fenwick. Evan is a VC uh, venture tech lawyer and Jennifer is an IP tech privacy gaming uh, lawyer on the on the team at Fenwick. Fenwick is one of the best tech firms in the world. Uh, did the I Facebook so, yeah. IPO, um, OG in the tech world uh, for sure. And we're really blessed to have them because they see so many deals. They have tons of clients from, you know, all sorts of ranges of, of tech companies and it's their bread and butter. So it, it's really interesting to talk to them. Yeah, they're a great firm, man. I've used them at multiple, uh, multiple in-house gigs and uh, you know they they can deliver anything man like like you said they could do a facebook ipo or they can send you a junior associate to con d to help you with you know i don't know commercial transactions like they've got the whole scope of like tech support tech company legal support um wrapped into the office even non-lawyers i think i might be wrong about this but i feel like they have like a pool of like non-attorney privacy gurus that that also kind of help with compliance and stuff what i really like about them as a group um, particularly these lawyers too that we're going to talk to but like you can tell when when there's an issue and they're talking about it that they've dug in like they yeah, don't sure. they don't know the answer they'll tell you but you know nine times out of ten it's yeah like we've dug in pretty deep on this one and here's our take and have a discussion about an outcome and they're willing to give you practical advice and that's why it's good to talk to people like this and in in this kind of scenario in real life um, when you need stuff so uh, it was it's really awesome that they were able to come join us here they're awesome and before we jump into the chat with them like you know uh wall street's one of my favorite movies like I, I mean for all sorts of reasons i like the updated version too like and uh you know the leonardo i mean the uh the, what, what would it, it had a new name but i don't remember what it was called but what i don't was remember the, the name but the what ver, episode second second uh yeah, whatever, like part two, I don't even know what to call it, but it was good. Yeah, it was, yeah, that one was good too. But the original, like Michael Douglas, was this his best movie? I, I, I don't know, man. He was uh, good. Tough to say, right? You got, you got a lot of Michael Douglas movies on the, on the list there. This has got to be. I think it's his, the, the one with Sharon Stone, I forget, what's the name of that thing? Basic Instinct is pretty good. Basic Instinct is pretty solid. I think this was his best work, this one. Have you uh, seen Wall Romancing and... the Stone? What is it? Have you seen Romancing the Stone? No. That's, is that... <laughs> that's probably one of the movies that put him on the map. Uh, is that it? So I, I, should, is it? I have to check that out. I haven't seen that. It's, so it's, I will. That's my homework. <laughs> that's a good one as well. What a name it's, for a movie. The game, game is a good one too. The Game. That is a great movie too. He's a, he's, he's a badass. Um, but I, I will say this. Like... How old is this movie? When, what year was this? Do you remember? I don't know. 83? Early 80s. 80, early 80s. He could wear that outfit right now and he'd look like a boss walking down Water Street in New York City, right? Like, I mean, the suspenders vibe is still here, a little bracelet, maybe minus the cigarette. I feel like the cigarette is too far, but like the outfit would work. He'd be vaping now. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be, yeah, he'd have a jewel or whatever that thing is. Yeah. Um, Anyway, super dope movie. We need to, if this podcast, you know, if we can monetize this podcast into billions of dollars, as I know we will, we, my first gift to you is going to be a red leather chair. <laughs> my, um, my wife's a vegan, so no, no thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. 
Well, we'll do some clinic. Uh, here Clutter. it is. It's our, our chat with Jennifer and Evan. Um, looking forward to that. Here it is. All right. Here we are, Data Protection Breakfast Club, joined by Jennifer Stanley and Evan Beanstalk from Fenwick and West. Pedro, you want to you wanna do an intro? usually have an 80s-related question to ask uh, of the crew. The theme here is Wall Street. This is why Evan is, this is not his uh, normal, everyday uh, venture tech lawyer garb here. Nah, he's looking good. He's looking straight out of the movie, man. Here's a good question. Like you see the, I think those are like Tandys back there behind Michael Douglas on your background, <laughs> you know, top of the line stuff there. What's the first computer you guys had and when was it? I mean, hopefully it's eighties, but it might be nineties, I'm guessing, but when? Oh, I mean, I had an Apple IIe, nice. uh, which must've been, uh, I'm trying to think of the house I lived in, to put myself in the time zone. 1980. Nice. Oh, you were way out ahead of the game, man. You yeah. were. It was coding. Yeah. So I grew up in Ireland and uh, we did not have a computer at home during the 80s, although I'm absolutely a kid of the 80s. But I remember learning in uh, what would have been the equivalent of middle school um, to program in BBC Basic. Uh, which is super basic, and I would say that was probably uh, around 1982 or three. Um, and that that was my first foray into computers, which looked not unlike what Michael has behind him in his uh, in his image from the movie. There, we had a Mac standalone, the one piece, everything with the keyboard. I don't even know. I don't know what model that was, but we had a 2E and a 2GS at school. And, and that, that was, but that was later. That was, you know, that was still in the eighties, but it was a few years later after that, or, or maybe, or maybe it was blended floppy together. Floppy oh, disks, right? Yep, floppy disks. Disc. Yeah. Hard disks. But, but floppies were the little ones, right? Floppies, excuse me, yeah. Floppy disks were the little ones. Hard disks were the floppy ones. That's how yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you all play, yeah. did you all play Oregon Trail? Yeah, and Carmen San Diego, man, I used to play that all the time. My first, my, Spy I was Hunter. just gonna say, go ahead, go ahead. Load Runner and Spy Hunter were big for me. Spy Hunter, that's old that's school awesome. stuff right there. Yeah. I remember a lot of Carmen San Diego. I think I'm a little younger than you guys, but my first computer was in the early '90s, and it was a Compaq. But the first time I remember you, Compaq Presario, remember that? Yeah. My first computer that I remember using, I was in kindergarten. So this would have been like 87. And it was definitely an Apple computer, like the tiny ones. I don't think it was even like, maybe there was a mouse involved, but I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, and the, you to load the computer. You had to put the, yeah. It's yeah, impressive I, if you're doing that in kindergarten now. We, we weren't uh, doing that back in Ireland in, in kindergarten, I can tell you. Well, we had one computer for the school. Okay, like I think it was yeah. in a library or something like that. And it was like, mm -hmm. a, I remember the Apple logos, the colored, you know, different color Apple logo, Apple Macintosh vibes. Um, and then we got a computer lab where we had like four or five and that's where Carmen San Diego came in. But anyway, that's my 80s computational experience. We'll come back to this, but let's, let's let our guests, uh, give us like a, a quick intro of your, the focus, you know, of your practice. And, and we have a bunch of, a bunch of interesting things to talk about from there. Sure. Um, I'll start off with just sort of my practice. Um, so I've been a venture lawyer for 18 years now. I actually practiced for eight or nine years in Boston. 
um, and the remainder has been in New York and um, representing tech companies, um, you know, across a broad variety range of industries, but tech companies um, at all stages of, of their growth, right? So from really from zero, from before there were Y Combinator and 500 startups and tech stars, we were sort of hanging around universities and hanging around MIT in like the early 2000s um, and helping founders sort of start companies out of um, the MIT Media Lab, et cetera, um, and helping them from, from zero effectively to exit and everything sort of in, in between. So um, in my sort of 18 years, I've, I've done a lot of varying transactions from public offerings and just sort of general public company work and overnight shelf take takedowns and pipes and all of that, um, general corporate stuff, M&A, lots and lots of venture. And then I mostly do um, venture now, private company work, um, mostly on the company side, but I would also say maybe 25, 30% investor side deals. And now, you know, when there's an IPO, I'll hand it off to the securities group. I don't, I just, I don't do that stuff anymore. Um, so that, that's me, general corporate, general corporate lawyer from zero on, um, I'll let Jennifer go. And then Jennifer has been at Fenwick longer than I have. So I'll let her give the Fenwick story, uh, for a minute too. Sure. Sure. Uh, so, uh, I've been practicing law for uh, north of 20 years. Uh, you can probably guess my age as we get through this discussion as the 80s references come in, but I've been at Fenwick for 20 years, uh, shockingly, despite my youthful looks and demeanor. Um, and I'm an IP transactional lawyer, um, so I focus on um, mainly uh, business to consumer products and services uh, from a tech perspective. And back when I was in law school in Ireland, um, actually a 1980s character um, influenced uh, the trajectory of my career, um, a musician called Adam Ant. Adam and the Ants, uh, for people who are really old, uh, may know them. And uh, one of my favorite songs in the early 80s was Stand and Deliver, and I can still see him on top of the pops on BBC in our one television that we had in our living room. And that was the only place you could consume any media when I was growing up. But the Adam Ant case in law school was about IP and how you bring IP to the world in a meaningful way. And that really made me decide this is what I want to do. Um, and at Fenwick, my practice, as I said, focuses on sort of primary care intellectual, pro uh, intellectual property counseling for um, uh, our client base, which is all tech focused, um, or as I like to say, bringing joy to the world one company at a time, because I focus a lot on video games and um, content and food tech and music and all of the things that people enjoy in their lives. And we look at it from a, an IP and a transactional perspective. So as you can imagine, all of the things that a company would think about, including data, which is a huge issue today and wasn't a huge issue a while ago, um, come into play there. When you counsel a company, but it's for both of you, like when you counsel a company from zero, as you said, Evan, when, they're t when you're talking to them and sussing out like what's the, what's the business model here? What's the importance of data, both from a kind of like in your mind, Evan, maybe prepping them for what they're gonna go through as they try to raise, as they try to grow. And Jennifer, from your perspective, like what do I have to protect? What do I have to help them protect? What are the things that you're both kind of thinking about? Maybe start with you, Jennifer, in that, in those scenarios, like what, what when you're like, I'm especially interested in when they're very, like in their infancy and you know, it's maybe two, three, four people starting the company. Great question. And I think 
I'll start with observing that it's a different answer today than it would have been when I started at Fenwick in the year 2000. And frankly, when I was practicing law back in Ireland in the late 90s. Um, today, data is always front and center because despite the business model of the company, there is data uh, relevant for personal interest purposes and then just for asset purposes. So in a B2C play, figuring out who your users or your customers are and uh, how you can connect with them and what resonates with them and how your privacy story is going to be and what their privacy story is going to be and what they care about are table stakes uh, for products and services. And so privacy by design is a term of art that's bandied around a lot. Around a lot. And I think um, companies today, even if it's just four founders in a, in, a, in a garage somewhere here in Silicon Valley are still thinking about that as it goes forward because investors are gonna ask about it, companies are gonna ask about it, users are gonna ask about it right at the beginning. So you, I, think, you think that's ubiquitous now? I mean, I, you can answer it too, but. That's that that is something that that's known and people and the founders are even thinking about at that at that moment. I think and, and Evan, I'll be interested to hear your perspective. I think for a savvy founder who has looked at his or her, her market, it's going to be on the list. It might not be top of the list, but it's going to be on the list. And I'll, I'll, I'll just um, add, I don't think it was top of the list 20 years ago or even 15 years ago in, in a way that it is today. Evan? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think it's in, I think it is it's industry um, specific as opposed to industry agnostic. I think it's it's more heavily skewed in certain industries than others. But the first thing I, I think of it at a little bit higher level, and I ask or I try to ask um, just sort of two questions like, what is it, and how are you using it? Um, so at that very basic level, like let's start thinking about your data holistically, um, and what kind of data are you collecting directly or indirectly? What kind of data are you collecting and how are you using it? Are you using it for specific purposes or are you using it for, um, you know, uh, de-identified purposes to figure out how people are interacting with your platform or are you actually sort of using it for demographics? And, and, at, that, and at that point, there are decision trees to make and we'll sort of talk about um, actions we can take as we start to build the company and build the structure around what they're, what, 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 and how that comes to data. And yeah, early. Um, what? So, so, sorry, Andy, like you guys, I hear this a lot and maybe because you're in the M&A team or you're in the M&A space, you might be able to illuminate this for me a little bit. The category that the term tech company, what does that mean? I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great yeah. question, right? Because I, I had a mentor coming up, you know, through a really large chunk of my, of my practice. Um, and he, um, he used to say, this is probably in the mid-2000s, he said, every company is a tech company now, right? Because every company has to have some sort of, there isn't just a company that just now just sells boxes anymore. They're a tech company. Um, so, you know, I think that it's a good question. I don't necessarily know how to, how to answer it, but I think that, um, like, for example, I just did a webinar earlier today where I interviewed a founder of a company called The Sill, and The Sill is uh, that she sells plants B to C, um, and they deliver them to your house, and she's had huge growth in the last six months. 
would we call her a tech company? I mean, no, yes and no, right? She's selling a plant, but she's, they're interacting on the platform. She's taking payments over on, on you know, on her website. Um, she's, she's chatting and interacting. So I think it's just a, it, you know, it's a very broad term. Basically. And I guarantee you at some point in that, in that founder's journey, she said something or her board or she said something to her board, like we're actually a data company. Well, I hope so. Maybe not. You hear that a lot too. Like right? you hear that same right. statement a lot. Too. Oh no, we're we're actually a data company, and and right. that's most it's it's trickier. But it I'll is. give you an I'll give you an example that confuses me, and just interested to hear from you guys what you think. So, like when I think of Grubhub, Uber Eats, uh, Seamless, uh, and I know I'm forgetting a big one. Sorry, um, Eat Twenty Four and whatever. Yeah. All these like. DoorDash, that's the one I was forgetting, and DoorDash, right? So I think of those, my brain automatically thinks tech companies, Silicon Valley, whatever. How are they different from Domino's Pizza? Like, I, you know, it's, Domino's Pizza has an app and delivers pizza. Like, what's the difference? Well, isn't Domino's Pizza a tech company too, though, if we're using That's this what they say, right? But that's yeah. what they say, right? Like, yeah. Um, but I don't think my mom thinks of Domino's Pizza as a tech company, or, or but I know she thinks of she would think of Grubhub as one, right? Like things have changed. Just, I'm trying to figure out what things have changed. I think we're conditioned yeah. differently, right? You know, we're, we're the four of us are talking here are tech lawyers, so we're we're obviously skewed in a direction. But you know, a, a company that the Fenwick team is representing from zero or one or two years first round, like if it's a DoorDash, that company was conceived a certain way. Mm -hmm. Domino's has evolved. Um, and McDonald's is an example I use quite a bit. It was a client at my last company. Um, I use them as an example a lot when I'm talking about Alice and I'm explaining how Alice works. And it is a scenario I often use is we'll say you're a software company and you want to sell your marketing software to McDonald's. People are always like, oh, really? And yeah, well, think about it. They have a huge technology stack. Of course, they're buying marketing technology. And if you're trying to identify 50 VPs at a place that might be, you know, in the market to make a big tech purchase, then yeah, you, you might be looking at how to engage with those people. So uh, I'd like to hear what you guys think, but I think the world's changed a lot around that. We think a lot about industries um, as opposed to it being tech. It's too generic a term right now, I think. And, you know, if you take an example, our client Airbnb, uh, is it a tech company? Is it a tourist company? Is it a rental business? Is it any of the above? It, you know, there, I think your point, um, Pedro, about, you know, what does your mom think? I think the community thinks what it thinks. And uh, I think the community um, may not think that Grubhub is a tech company either. It's a company that delivers food. You know, oftentimes what, what we see is there's the, the product offering in the industry, and then there's the customer base, B2C, B2B, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the success of the business is, am I delivering, selling, offering solutions that companies, people want? And then it's inevitable that tech is a part of all of this. And I think to uh, extrapolate a little bit on what you alluded to earlier, Andy, data is really an asset now because technology enables the manipulation of data and the value add to data in a way that it didn't uh, 50 years ago, let's say. Yeah. But also isn't, isn't technology just sort of also a catalyst for sales and marketing? Um, yeah. Well, 
um, and people are, are using it for that for that purpose. I mean, look at the biggest company in the world now is, I, I think, is is Amazon. Um, is Amazon a tech company? I mean, they sell stuff, right? And they started off selling books, um, but they wouldn't exist, right, without their their the technology that they have. But I don't know that tr traditionally. I think people think maybe of your mother's generation, maybe even of my, my my parents' generation. Oh well, only Microsoft is a tech company, and Oracle they're a tech company, but Uber is just I don't know. You get a car from them, so I, I do think that it's a it's been a paradigm shift. Probably the biggest paradigm shift um, in the last hundred years. In the last ten, how is it? Here's why I think. It, sorry, so, sorry, Andy. Here, here's why I think this is an important distinction, and I'm of the point of view that in order to be characterized as a tech company, your primary deliverable has to be of of a, a, a technology enabler or a device. Meaning, you either your 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 what you give the public or your customer, if it's B two B, is a piece of technology like a laptop or uh, some sort of software, whether that's SaaS or not, doesn't matter, right? Like some sort of uh, uh, technological solution. So like back to Grubhub versus Domino's, Domino's revenue comes from selling pizzas, right? Like Grubhub's comes from the delivery of food. However, what they really do is provide consumers with a channel to buy food. Like that's how I think of it. Here's why it's important though, in my point of view, because I think like I'm watching these hearings today, Facebook, Twitter, and um, and Google, uh, these congressional hearings, and you listen to politicians talk about how big tech is out of control and all the usual stuff. And um, I think the expectations for data governance and privacy are somehow elevated for companies that we think of as being in the technology sector by their nature. Um, I don't know that that's appropriate, but I think that's the truth. Um, because for example, a company that was not at that hearing there's another tech company, Amazon tech company, um, who has as much or more data than some of the companies on that here, right? Like about us, right? About of our behaviors and our preferences and, and has a huge advertising business, for example. So I guess I, 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 I'm saying all of that to say, whether or not it's appropriate, we have what I think are these ad additional expectations of how tech companies are gonna govern themselves when they access our information but even within that expectation, we have inconsistencies. Like not all the right players are being held to the, the same standard. The fact that Amazon is not there it's is ridiculous to emblematic of how little that group knows. Like right. they are, because of AWS, they are the backbone of nearly every tech company out there. They're on every sub-processor list you will ever see in your life. Mainly. In the world. Them or GCP or somebody. So like, it's sort of ludicrous, right? What I think is fascinating I, is I also, agree. Pedro, your definition of a tech company, especially because of where you work, right? I mean, you work at sort of the quintessential deliverer of enterprise or SaaS software-based solutions, right? So for you, that's sort of like exactly in the vortex of tech companies, right? Doesn't, um, which I think is an interesting, it's an interesting definition and I think you're making a very fascinating sort of bifurcation, a line bifurcation. Yeah, I, just, I, I and, and fully agree also with your uh, point about you know what the world thinks is a tech company actually isn't necessarily what is what is the reality. And I think your point is an excellent one on 
you know, any company that leverages the ability to access and manipulate data and know what data, uh, how, how to put it to work, um, one could argue um, should be subject to exactly the same scrutiny as a company that labels itself as such. Because uh, the end result and the impact on the world, good or bad, whatever our perspective is, is going to be the same uh, for consumers. So I think it's, it's an important distinction. One probably that people like us only worry about. <laughs> but that's kind of a different conversation. But the revenue is an interesting way to, dis to distinguish also. Right. If your revenue is particular, is, is predominantly driven by the sale of technology as a service, as opposed to the sale of something being used by technology, um, that's another different distinction. Do you think? Yeah, do, and you, do you think ahead, that the, Do you think that the the viewpoint of venture capital investors, how has that impacted this? In the sense of, you both are probably interacting with these these parties a lot when they're assessing companies now some of this i think is just influenced by who's willing to put money on the table for certain types of companies and their particular viewpoint on what they're willing to invest in having seen a smidgen of these not nearly as many as you all have that seems apparent to me they've got a take and they've got an opinion on it and that's evolved a little bit over time but they're willing to put their money more often in a company that looks a certain way or has a certain execution pattern. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the venture capital model, um, I think that we all sort of understand and know it, um, but you know, they're gonna have a fund and they, they need one company to return the fund. And that one company, you know, they're expecting 100X. So everything else, not that it doesn't matter, but they need a hundred X return or so on a company in the portfolio and technology um, for, for, for whatever reason in the last 20 or 30 years, as opposed to maybe the 20 or 30 years before that, when it was either, you know, it was what he does um, or even way before that it was, you know, industry technology is, is the only way that people see to get that multiple. Um, so yeah, venture capital for sure is, is sort of driving what people think of as a technology company. They're the ones that are putting the label on it. Super M&A in the weeds question. When you, you know, and I've done a, my fair share of M&A. I've been involved in my fair share of M&A transactions as since I've been in house and even when I was in private practice, um, but obviously not in the trenches as much as you guys, when you're working on either side of an M&A transaction, but particularly when you're in the position of the acquirer, right? Um, and you're asking the target, the company you're trying to buy uh, for disclosures about like their data governance, how deep can you probe into what their data practices are particularly around their data privacy practices. And has that changed in the last couple of years? Meaning do you have more access, less access, more transparency, less transparency? Like how's that evolving? Um, I think it has evolved significantly from where I sit. And I would say there's, uh, the, the dynamic of the deal is always important, right? So let's assume you're a target that wants to be bought and there's a nice price tag and there's a good story to tell and there's a good alignment with the acquirer. 
um, which is usually the case, right, um, if the deal is serious, um, then access to the data compliance practices, data governance practices, et cetera, um, is open access, actually. Um, and I see that again and again in our practice. And you can imagine, you know, if you're the acquirer, uh, you, do, you don't want to buy a problem. Um, you know, data privacy, there's a lot of risk associated with not compliance, non-compliance, theoretical or real. There are scary fines uh, that are attached to non-compliance with certain laws and so on. How those manifest themselves can be sort of theoretical for lawyers, but they're practical too. And, you know, if you're the deal broker who's trying to figure out whether, you know, my company is buying a problem or not, um, it, 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 it manifests itself in those areas. And if you take a simple saying, you know, I've seen this, I'm obviously not going to name names, but I have seen deals fall through um, in the kids' uh, data compliance area, for example, right? So compliance with COPPA is very regulated. There's a lot of things companies have to do. It's really bad if you collect kids' information without uh, getting the appropriate consents and so on. And if you're um, looking to buy a company and uh, there's no COPPA compliance strategy and there's a bunch of tainted data there, it can be you're really buying liability by taking those data uh, those user accounts. So we've seen deals either fall through for reasons like that, or I've seen one deal where um, our clients sort of bought the technology but didn't take any of the users, which you can imagine is kind of a not a great experience for people who are using a platform. All of a sudden, like you wake up, boom, I can't use it anymore. And this, this horrible devil company over here bought it and is now changing it, which isn't actually the reality. It was a much more reasoned um, decision to not take the data, but I've absolutely seen that. Um, you see the same in healthcare. HIPAA compliance is super um, complex and you know, buying a company that hasn't got its ducks in a row there um, can, can, and it can, can, can result in sort of buying liability. And some of that can be fixed and some can't, but I would say certainly for where, from where we sit, there is a heightened understanding in the boardroom, at the executive level, at the deal maker level, you know, right down to the people who are trying to figure out like, what am I going to do with this data when I get it over into, into my tech company from a developer level too. So I would say it's actually quite different. And I've really seen an evolution of that uh, over my years. At this is a great example of, of the way the movies romanticize deal making. And then, you know, it's very unromantic when you're negotiating reps and warranties, you know, around these things. It's very unlike Wall Street. Nobody's you know, making crazy, crazy moves and, and maneuvers and stuff. So is it like these, these, would you say that these reps and warranties are, have elevated themselves in terms of the importance of the negotiation, you know, in, in maybe as, as in the past, I mean, or, or other, other parts of the M&A or, or financing transactions still more important than that, than the data piece? Uh, I, I can respond to that, um, and then I'd like to hear what my, what my partner Evan says. So first of all, 100% agree, if someone was making a movie of our lives doing deals, that would be some dull, boring stuff to watch. Um, it's not even people sitting in a data room anymore. I remember where we used to actually like physically go places and you could sit, kind of hang out, and there, there's fun. You, you, if you tried, you could make it visually appealing if you took the outtakes and made it into kind of a funny movie. But uh, now it's uh, sitting in front of a computer looking at a, a data room that's hosted by some tech company um, and you're just looking at documents, really dull stuff. But I, I think uh, 
I think that the reps and warranties mean you can look at it again if you really uh, want to not be entertained in the movie world. Um, you know, the, the data privacy rep was two paragraphs or, an, or a sentence, you know, 15 years ago. Now it's like five paragraphs or a few pages, depending on what it is. So uh, yeah, 100%, I think the dynamic has changed. It doesn't mean you can't have a punchy conversation though. Um, and, and you could act and you could pretend you're Gordon Gecko in those. Uh, discussions if, if, if you tried, um, but, uh, but I definitely think there's been a change. Evan, what, what do you see? I think from the risk shifting perspective on the deal overall, I, I'm sure you see the impact there too. Yeah, look, I, I, think that, I think that people have gotten a lot smarter about data in the last 10 years, right? Um, and they've also gotten smarter about how to use it and how to protect it because I just, I see less and less um, real hand-wringing um, and over, over data than I think I used to. Uh, like I remember that we had a, a venture on the investor side, I had a venture capital, a venture capitalist probably eight years ago, nine years ago, venture capitalists walk away from a deal at the very end because the, the target company or the, the, the company that they were investing in just had terrible, terrible processes and procedures for their for their data protection. I mean, it was like, you guys need to redo this whole thing and we're walking away. And I just, I don't think that would happen now. It's just, it's too top of mind. Yeah. So um, I, I think, and if it does happen, I think it's fleshed out pretty early. Like by the time you get to real M&A, um, hopefully you've got good counselors, really like, like honestly, you've got good counselors along the way that are saying, whether it's your bank or your lawyers, they're saying, hey, in order to get to a real M&A, you've got to make sure this is tight. Um, so I don't think we see deals die in the last minute. There could be a, there could be a, you know, a price adjustment somewhere early on um, because of it. Yeah, I don't think they're dying, at least in, in not only in rare scenarios where maybe the data asset was the target of the thing that was happening. I've actually seen that happen where the collection practices around the data asset were suspect. And so yeah, I can tell you, yeah, I, fundamental, I, I, okay. yeah, I'll say, I have to be really careful here. So like at multiple employers, I have seen transactions get tanked for data privacy and cybersecurity issues. And just a, a, on the target side, the issues were on the target side. And when, um, did, when did they die, Pedro? Like what point of the deal? Good question. The, the decisions were made at the highest levels and the, at, we were past the LOI, the letter of intent stage and at some, in, a, in an advanced stages of diligence. Hmm. That's pretty yeah. So I've seen it. I, I, I've seen, I've it seen that too. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen it too, Pedro, but I do agree um, with Evan's comment that it is, Companies on both sides are more solution oriented now. So unless it's a nuclear issue, there's desire to kind of solve it, you know. So if it's a, if it's a mature company that should have known what it's doing and there's a ton of liability, that's different. But there's a much more sophisticated level of understanding on both sides that we see now in terms of let's how do we fix this and maybe there's a price adjustment or a risk adjustment or something like that um, or we take this but we don't take that to kind of bifurcate it out so it's sort of an understanding of um, figuring out kind of where the 
push pull is as opposed to what you said, Andy, which is, oh my God, I don't know what's going on here. This this is too scary. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go ahead with that. More frequently what's happening, um, I, I agree with all that. And more frequently, like I think what's happening is just this elongation of the process caused by some of these things and sort of more, just a lot more focus on it. So to Evan's point, companies are savvy to it. So are the investors. So are, uh, and so one time uh, I was part of it, like just a, a, an inside round, you know, existing investors investing in a company and we had a diligence phone call and it was me and the CFO. And I thought to myself, Oh, cool. Like, I'm just going to be listening here. This is mostly going to be him updating them on where the company is financially. And lo and behold, it was 95% me talking, talking about data and privacy. We got out of there and I said, I just did not expect that. I would have maybe, you know, luckily we, we, were, we were in decent shape, but a, it, was a, it was a funny experience. And I think that's emblematic maybe of like, just where t maybe just more time is being spent there on kind of that I'd now. Um, lately. Yeah. Well, I think also the consumer and people that are not even on the call like this, that don't even think about this stuff, the consumer is, it's just on their minds too, right? Literally today, I got three calls from the Social Security Administration. It's shocking that they keep calling me and telling me that my Social Security number is getting hacked. Yeah. But I happen to be a tech lawyer, right? So it's all over, you know, I get it. It, it, this stuff is just pervasive. So it's not just top of mind for us. It's top of mind data and identity protection. Look, I've got a number of clients that are, that are creating solutions for identity protection and verification online. You know, I, being able to multi-factor identify who you are. So it's everywhere. You know what I've seen? You know what else? I've seen a lot of activity in the last year, year and a half of like either identity, uh, I don't even know what to call it, this category of companies, but companies that deal with identity, whatever, yeah. I don't know what that category is called, security and privacy. So things like the one trusts and the big IDs and these things of the world, sweeping each other up, buying each other, you know, there's a lot of acquisition in the privacy and security as a service space. I hope I just made that up. That'd be super dope, but I don't think I did. Um, but in that space, I've seen a lot of activity. Are you guys seeing the same or is this me being anecdotal? And why do you think that is? And if you think it is, will it continue? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I haven't seen like, I mean, it's, it's not a, a huge, huge market in my, in my opinion, but I, I am seeing money being put behind it and smart people thinking about it. Um, and why? Because I think everybody is, everybody does all of their transaction online and everybody is scared, right? So you're like one password, you, you know, um, do you guys own one password? Maybe you bought. I know the, that's the, uh, the like password yeah. manager. Yeah. Bobber. Yeah. yeah I, I know about it. I don't use it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's 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 top of mind. You know, I have two companies that are doing the exact same thing um, on this online verification. I've got another cybersecurity company that's attacking another part of the market. So yeah, it's everywhere, for sure. And, and, and a leader might emerge, probably will. I mean, I think we see this again and again in different industries when you've got people kind of grappling for that uh, prize of, you know, being the, the 
leader or the preferred services provider, whatever you want to call it, in, in this area of I can give you a certification to say you're all buttoned up or I can guarantee that your you know, single sign-on works. Um, so I, I think so maybe we've seen before in different industries. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all that we see that trend now. I mean, one other point, which I think is an interesting one and much more existential, you know, how consumers really think about privacy and how much they care. And I agree with you, Evan, to an extent, right? Because I think there are people who really care about this stuff. But then, you know, you have to sort of balance that with then, you know, prolific social media users who put their whole lives out there on their favorite social media channel visually and um, in any other way. And so there's, I often see a contradiction between this intense desire for privacy and the intense desire to showcase my life to the world. And, and, and there, there's a dichotomy there. It's, it's, you know, you know, it's uh, it's not the same as putting your social security number and your bank details and your, you know, other sensitive stuff uh, on your Facebook feed, but, People are also, there's a generational issue here, I think, too, where people are more likely to put stuff out there or not even not understand the risk, kind of just not care about it so much, uh, which is another sort of topic that I think is being looked at in this, in this kind of data space overall. I have a question for Andy, because I know that he is uh, obviously based on these these, these sessions very sort of attuned to data privacy and security. Do you treat your own personal data privacy and security with the same sort of heightened scrutiny as you do like with, you know, work and, and your, and your work, or do you sort of uh, have your same password, which is like your kids' names or something? I don't, I, I so I, it's an interesting thought, <laughs> thought experiment question. Uh, like I don't personally, no, I mean, I don't personally treat it differently. Pedro does um, and communicates and he's a good person to compare to me. I think like Pedro prefers to use signal um, for texting as opposed to just texting somebody something. I'm very, I'm, I'm a good example, Jennifer, of what you said of kind of the uh, embracing technology. I'm in my forties, but like, so I'm not, I, I've grown, grown up with a lot of this stuff um, and I embrace technology. I um, I want I want what I want when I want it, and I think I'm part of that generation. Like if I'm logged into Google, I'm logged in. You've got you've got me. You've got my you've got my email. You've got my um, my calendar. You've got like I I want the one ID. I want the Apple ID. I want everything synced up. I want that. It's like my life's too busy to have it any other way, to be honest. I, mm -hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't survive without linked calendars and things like this with my wife and, you know, trying to manage schedules of two small children. And there's just um, the convenience to me way, way um, uh, overshadows some of the privacy challenges. And I've had my identity stolen a couple of times and I've had incidents happen at work and, and they suck and, and you don't like it when it happens. Um, but I've, I'm, I'm, yes, privacy focused general counsel. I'm knowingly making that trade off. So I'm different than Pedro, I think, in, the, in a little yeah, bit. I'll say I share it with Andy in the fact that, like, my entire existence is really tied to four companies, right? And like Apple, 
I, everything on my desk is Apple on my watch, my phones, whatever. Um, Amazon, overwhelming majority of my shopping happens through that platform. Uh, uh, Facebook, because I use Instagram, WhatsApp, and the Facebook platform for like socializing. And then Google for productivity, right? Like, and I, and I use all these suites and I use them as comprehensively as anybody else. But I'll hang a caveat on that. Um, I have migrated a lot of texting to Signal, especially when it's of a sensitive nature, business or, pri or, or personal, doesn't matter. Um, two, I don't use Google search. I use DuckDuckGo and have for 10 years. So I don't use their search. And three, on all these uh, platforms, all four of those companies I just mentioned, all of my privacy settings are set to most restrictive, right? I go through the process on Google's platform to not let them track my videos on YouTube, to not let them retarget me, to not let them collect my location information on their Google Maps. Like uh, Apple, like I just bought, got this Apple Watch today. I upgraded my watch. I make sure that it's not sharing statistics and analytics data with Apple. They can get that from somebody else. I'm not going to get it from Pedro, the privacy lawyer. It's just not going to be things that I do. I don't allow any of the software that I use to like send data to the, you know, like when your thing crashes, it's like, do you want to send it to Apple? No, I don't. I'm not interested. Like if I have a problem, I'll call Apple. And you know, same thing with Google, like everything's restricted. I go through that process because I'm wonky. I don't think it's fair to ask everybody to go through that process, right? There has to be some kind of a global, like, this is my preference and let it apply everywhere. Smarter people than I will figure out how to make that solution. But I think I am wonky about it, even though I use all this stuff because you, you have to. Yeah, it, it, it's so interesting to hear about your perspectives there. I am probably somewhere in the middle. You know, like you said, Andy, I'm, I'm okay with seeing targeted ads because I know why they're there. Sometimes I kind of appreciate it actually because I'm super busy and I forgot to click you know, buy in the Nordstrom cart and then I see it again. I'm like, oh, I was, or I was kind of de deciding and now I've decided, but I feel like I am intentionally making that decision. I've had this conversation with friends who say you're really not, you're being convinced to do it in, in, in ways that subliminally you don't, you don't know. And then, you know, the, um, the, the notion that data is aggregate or anonymized and um, let's assume that it is, right? You know, if I think about my home here in San Francisco, I'm totally fine on an IoT per, from an IoT perspective with the city of San Francisco having an understanding about our water consumption or whatever, our electricity, when we turn on our dishwasher, anything that's connected to our systems here in, in our house, if that, um, you know, can be used altruistically, you know, to make the city more efficient or whatever. I understand that there are nefarious uses of those kind of information too. Part of me and it's a cynical perspective wonders, you know, who really cares in a way that's really meaningful. Of course, I know there are, you know, bad things that can happen. And I have a very good friend who's wicked smart. Uh, she's a lawyer, um, not a David, a privacy lawyer. And she said to me once, I don't put stuff on Facebook and I don't use Facebook because I just don't feel comfortable with like my pictures being on a Facebook server somewhere, but I'm completely fine with WhatsApp. And I was like, well, you do know Facebook owns WhatsApp, don't you? And she was like, oh. And it was kind of a little bit of an aha moment. This is somebody who's very smart, but a totally different type of lawyer to the type of lawyers we are. And she kind of had a moment where she was like, oh God, I got to rethink that whole like moral decision I made for myself and my family, you know? Um, so anyway, I think there's, there's a lot of- But maybe she doesn't, right? Like maybe intuitively, she made the right choice because yeah, Facebook yeah. owns WhatsApp, but, but WhatsApp is a much, 
more, you know, end to end encrypted. I don't want to use the word secure, but it's a much more private way. You're right. No, things, you're right. right. And it's a, it's a different experience. And, and that experience exactly. use resonates with a consumer, which ultimately I actually think kind of informs how we as humans react. Even people like us who kind of know more than your average person might about why things are the way they are and why you decide to set your privacy settings as you do. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear people in the industry, how they sort of treat their own personal stuff. I have CEOs that are hyper, hyper sensitive. Um, I'm, I'm probably squarely in Andy's camp, but I do change my Google. I change my Gmail password fairly regularly. Cause I feel like if someone could Smart. email, Gmail is the key to everything. Right, because you could get into your bank, Gmail, and your bank account number, and it's game over. And your texts. I feel like text is where all the sensitive action is. <laughs> and the younger you get, probably the crazier text message pools of data are. Right. So like iCloud, uh, whatever WhatsApp Cloud, or whatever that is. Th those places are delicate. But I'm with you, by the way. I don't necessarily change my Gmail password all the time. But I use, my Google password is different than the password for everything else. And I think it's because I share your same kind of like, this is kind of a, a very sensitive space, right? Where, where I'm sharing all sorts of stuff with. Suggestion, suggestion for your next one is blue, what is it? Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel. Steel, yeah. Well done. <laughs> Bring in, successfully brought in. Uh, thank, thank you both. Thank you both so much for, for joining us. This was totally awesome. I could talk to you guys for another two hours. Yeah, but. this could be a three hour podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, we can't, let, we, can't, we can't let you go before I say one thing or he'll be mad at me. Jim Koenig at Fenwick owes me some stone crabs um, and I'm putting him on blast here. He's with my hometown buddy. So say hi to Jim for me and tell him he, he owes me stone crabs next time I see him. I definitely will. We will. It's a great team at Fenwick from the privacy. That's angle, an awesome team. VC angle, all sorts of other parts of the firm. So um, thank you both for, for being with us. Um, it's awesome to have you both. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. All right, take Bye. care. I appreciate Bye. it. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.